from beautiful downtown Sacramento, it's time for Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Welcome to another episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! My name is Stephen Spashny, sometimes known as the Chancellor, and this is a very special episode dedicated to the life and career of Mr. Brett Hudson of the Hudson Brothers. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this fun-filled, frantic episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! The Hudson Brothers were a pop trio consisting of Bill, Mark, and Brett Hudson. Beginning their career in the mid-60s, the Hudsons didn't achieve fame and fortune until the mid-70s, when they began to score chart hits the same time that their TV series debuted. Originally a Wednesday night show, the TV series evolved into a popular Saturday morning series called the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show. However, having a TV show and trying to make it as a respected pop outfit was not easy. With albums that echoed the same pop songwriting smarts as contemporaries Badfinger and Wings, the Hudson Brothers should have been superstars. So for the next hour, enjoy my conversation with Brett Hudson as we discuss music, TV, family, music making, and his successful battle with cancer. Right here on Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. So you are a star. Okay. Nobody knows you like I do Well, the Hudson Brothers' musical career actually began in the 60s. You performed under a a variety of names like the Meisers, the New Yorkers, Everyday Hudson. You released records for Scepter, Jordan, uh, Decca. What do you remember most about those years? We signed our first record deal with Jordan Records when I was 11. It was November of 1964. Um, I, 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 it's going to sound kind of strange, but I was 11. I mean, you know, so put sign, sign your name there. Okay, and what do I get? Well, you get to make records. Where do I sign? I, I was not at all business-minded at 11 years old. And we cut a couple of... Uh, couple of songs that Jaredon released. And then uh, it, it, we recorded this song up in Seattle called Mr. Kirby, which was kind of for its time psychedelic. It had like a fuzz tone guitar in it. It was about a guy who we grew up around, a hobby shop. And we said, Mr. Kirby's soul is dead. 
Scepter Records uh, picked it up and released it. Back then, they would do regional release. Like, we were from the Pacific Northwest, so they would release it in the Pacific Northwest, and if it got numbers, they would try to spread it out the rest of the country. He released it nationally. And it started to pick up radio stations. It started to climb up the, the charts. And uh, it, it, a couple of radio stations wouldn't play it because they said it was drug-related, which was not true. We didn't take drugs. You never, ever get ahead, Mr. Kirby's It, it did really, really well. I mean, I, uh, it got, it was a top 30 record. I got to tour with the who and Herman's hermits and Martha Reeves and the Vandellas and God, uh, uh, the turtles and a, a bunch of bands that were really, you know, big at the time. I was for, uh, you know, I, I remember we played with, uh, Spencer Davis group and everybody went out and got drunk except for me, Bill, Mark and CB Winwood Cause we were all underage. <laughs> you know, Stevie was 17, I was 14, Bill was 16, uh, Bill was 17, Mark was, was uh, 14. But we just kind of hung back and played pinball and, you know, drank Coke. Uh, we were, we were, I was a baby. Uh, but, but what I learned from that uh, was really uh, how, to, how to record. Because we had only recorded on, you know, a, a reel-to-reel. We knew nothing about tracks. You know, we had, they said, you've got four tracks. And we went, four tracks, you mean four tracks we can record on? It was like, oh, my God, we've never had that. So it was, it was eye-opening when I was a very young man. But very quickly, and I say very quickly, we, we got onto it. We figured it out. And we figured out how, how to utilize uh, the recording system at the time and get as much bang out of that as we could. I mean, we were doing live overdubs, and if you screw up a live overdub, you just ruined the track. We were doing stuff like that back in uh, 66, 67, and it, it really honed our skills when we stepped it up, and then 8-track came in, and 16-track, and 24-track. Now, I mean, you have many tracks as you want, but back then, you know, uh, you, you were limited by, by technology, but that really helped us as performers. Well, who were your chief influences at that point? At that point, well, obviously the Beatles. I mean, how could they influence everybody? But also uh, Elvis Presley, um, the Rolling Stones, uh, John Lee Hooker. Uh, uh, you know, we were doing some blues stuff back in, in the, in the mid-60s that not a lot of bands in the Pacific Northwest were doing. They were still playing Louie Louie. And we were doing like the Little Red Rooster and stuff like that. And we just didn't care what anybody thought. We did music that we liked. And we were, you know, we got influenced by, by Badfinger, uh, 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 an English group called Ivy. Uh, I, I much, we much preferred the English sound as opposed to the American sound. Uh, we, we, I much preferred it. it was, the British sound was a lot more melodic than we were doing at the time, back in the early 60s. And, and my, my mom, God bless her, my my mom used to sing with my two aunts. They would do sing background like like Andrew sisters, that kind of tight harmony. My mom taught us how to sing harmony. We started. We were really young. I was like I said, I was twelve, thirteen, and we were. My mom would. You sing this baby is my family name. You sing this baby. You sing this Marky. You sing this Billy. And my mom would give us the notes and we would sing. She taught us how to harmonize. And then 
it, it, we were influenced by a lot of different people. I mean, uh, that, that you wouldn't expect us to have been influenced by. Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, songs that my mom and my uncle played. We were influenced by them because if you, they, were, they were pure. Tony Bennett, Tony Bennett, I, I, you know, Frank Sinatra said, if Tony Bennett looked like me, he would be bigger than me, which I thought was a great thing to say because Tony Bennett has a pure voice. And I was, we were influenced by a lot of people. I mean, you know, Johnny Ray, and not a lot of people know who that was, but we were influenced by a lot of people because there was always music around our house. Always. From the release of your first single, it took eight years to finally release your debut album, which was Hudson on Playboy Records. What do you remember about that time? Well, that was a real interesting time. That was like in 71, 72. I was, uh, we cut that album. I was 17, turning 18, I think. And it was totally different. I mean, there, there, was, a, there was more of a community of creative people and not everybody had their hand out or wanted credit. You just kind of did, you know, my brothers and I sang on tons of people's records, you know, uh, Kenny Rogers, Alice Cooper. We didn't ask for money. We just, we, we did it because we were in the studio and they needed vocals and we said, Hey, we'll do it. And you, we just did it. And I remember there was a lot of creative freedom back then. And, and uh, you, you just kind of, you just kind of hung out. And I mean, guys like Larry Mahobrak and stuff like that, who was Elvis's keyboard player, just came in and played on one of our tracks, two of our tracks, just came in. Why? Because he liked the songs. And, and, and that doesn't happen today at all. I, one of my fondest memories is that creative free freedom that, that, that was going on back then. I mean, uh, you know, you'd, you would write with different people and sing on different people's records and stuff like that. And it, it made it a great community, a great artistic community, and that doesn't exist anymore. And that that I do, I, I still miss. It doesn't that doesn't exist anywhere. Not in film, not in television, not in music, not in theater. It, it's it's just it's it's a different world. And and you know, I was we cut a song called "Leave and It's Over," which was our single on Playboy. I was 17 years old. Uh, I was you know I was I I I still had a tail. I mean I was I was a puppy. So, and, and it's not that we didn't know what we were doing, but it, basically we knew what we wanted to do. And, and we developed so, so fast from 71 to 73. It was, it, when I think back on it now, it's because we never stopped. We never stopped creating. We never stopped trying to get better. My brother, Bill, uh, God bless him, man, that guy, he, is the, he was the Nazi of rehearsing. We rehearsed more than any band I've ever seen in my life because my brother Bill said it's got to be automatic you've got to feel it you've got to know what you're doing and we just rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and got better and better and better as as musicians and better songwriters I mean I, you know we had a we had an image conflict obviously back in the day because we did television and you know how we got that show was a fluke as well. I remember Rolling Stone interviewed, uh, I mean, re reviewed one of our albums and he was, the guy praised it. Great pop songs, great harmony, really good musicians. They wrote all the songs, they played all their instruments. And at the end of the interview, he said, but I would, I would advise you not to buy it because they're on television. Which back then, I understand it. Now it's a total, it's a totally different world. I mean, you look at the, 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 bands that are out the groups and the the singers that are out today 
they're like Vegas shows. They got dancers and props and stuff like that. We just got up and played. Uh, it's totally changed. I could say if you want to try it, everything could work out right. I could say if you really need me, everything could work out fine. We could talk about the things that we miss, because we were young. We could catch the time we've lost if you really need me. How involved were you with the recordings of the albums? Because obviously people are going to think they're this monkey's complex where you guys didn't play on the records, but you actually did, correct? Yes, we actually played on our records. And, and it, I'm glad you brought that up because back in the 70s on television, everybody lip synced. And the reason they did it is because it was cost effective for the the show and the producer of the show to not set up a live thing. So, so, so everybody lip sync and we got a lot of, a lot of uh, gas from people saying, Oh, they lip sync, they lip sync, they lip sync. So when we got to be a little more successful and, and had a high television view, if you wanted to get us on your variety, I did every variety show known to man. Uh, they, they, we just said, if we, look, we want to play live. And you know what, because we had such a high television queue, they let us play live. And you know what? Nobody knew the difference. We still got we still got flack for the oh they lip sync they lip sync. No, that was live. That's how we sounded live. And I always say it till the day I die. Forget the music, forget the songs. But as far as how we sounded live, I would have put up, I would have put us up against any band. I don't care who they are. Live, live, we were really, really, really good. And I, I, I know that we sang on tune, you know, there was no autocorrect. There was none of that stuff. We didn't sing the tape. We actually sang. We actually did it live. And we were really good. And that's because my brother Bill was a taskmaster. I mean, we would, our very first big tour, which I think was in 74 or 75, I can't remember. We rehearsed every day, 12 hours a day for almost, well, for two months and three weeks. Every day, didn't matter. The same songs over and over and over again. But now, in hindsight, you know, I used to complain all the time. I was a young single guy, and I, you know, I, I, got, I want to go see this girl. No, 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 no. We got to. And the bottom line is, now in hindsight, that's why we were so good live. My brother Bill refused refused to not be good. first actual Hudson Brothers album was Hollywood Situation. Is that correct? That, that was the first, the really first Hudson Brother album was totally out of control that we recorded that Bernie Toppin produced. We were on Rocket Records. We cut that album in 73. At the end of Totally Lost Control, you had the medley. Were those actually unused songs that you strung together or did you purposely sit down to write a medley? That was Bernie Toppin's idea. We were in, uh, we were re rehearsing at this place off Wardour Street in London, 
and we were playing Bernie songs, you know, uh, that, that we had to see what, which ones we wanted to record and stuff like that. And we played him pieces of songs like, you know, that the first song in the medley that Bill wrote, which, you know, don't burn in the yard, firemen say it's hard on the air. He didn't have the complete song, but he played a piece of it and Bernie said, oh, it's really good. And then we played a couple of other pieces like that. And he goes, well, are they finished? And we went, no. And Bernie goes, why don't we try to string them together? We went, well, what? One's like a, like a country feel. One's a, one's like a folk song. Another one's a rock song. He goes, try to put them together. So we spent like two or three days in the, in the rehearsal studio just trying to take these song pieces and put them together. And it, uh, it, it worked. Uh, that, that's how, how it happened. And somebody asked me a while back, well, did, did you cut it and then edit it together? And no, that we cut it. We, the whole medley was cut in one take, the band track. All those songs, there were no edits, no cuts. It was all, uh, all done live in the studio. then had a falling out with rocket signed to Casablanca and Hollywood situation was actually the, the album. that was the first album release as a Hudson brothers and all, all, but I think three songs on that album were demos. Yeah. So Our star was a demo. We didn't even know they were going to release it. We were in Toronto doing a Hudson brothers razzle dazzle show. And all of a sudden, we're in the car driving to the studio to do this television show. And the disc jockey says, here's a new one from the Hudson Brothers. And we, you know, it, when you hear your name, you don't think, wait a minute, what? It was like, when did that come out? And they didn't edit it. It was like four minutes and 35 seconds. And back then, you, you know, your singles were two minutes, 30, two minutes, 40 seconds. And uh, we then called back and said, what the hell's going on? And Neil Bogart said, this is a smash. We released it. And my brother Bill goes, Neil, it's a demo. He goes, I don't care what it is. This is what he said. He goes, it's great. Harmonies are great. Good song. Well performed. They released it. It became a top 20 record for us. Around that same time, the Wednesday night variety show appeared. Were both of these projects completely separate of each other? And was the timing just coincidental? Yes, that's exactly, you are exactly right. And what's interesting is the cover of Hollywood Situation, that's not the picture that was supposed to be on there. Neil Bogart, and I'm not, you know, when I was younger, uh, we, were, we were pretty uh, pissed off at that because that was from our television show. And that's not really who we were. That's who we were doing television. The real cover, 
how we normally look, you know, leather jackets, jeans, T-shirts, how we normally dress. And in hindsight, now when I look back on it, Neil Bogart did the exact right thing. That was our audience. And he played right into it. And uh, it did extremely well. That album and, and that single did extremely well. Um, then, it, it, then what would then Rocket release Totally Out of Control, even though we had cut that a year earlier. Uh, and then uh, we left Casablanca and went back to Rocket and uh, we cut Baha. How did the TV show come about in the first place? Talk about being in the right place at the right time. My brothers and I, we had no money. We were like sleeping on people's floors or in our van and stuff like that. And we were staying at this uh, guy's house and he said, look, I'm having a big party this Saturday. If you guys steam off the wallpaper in the dining room and put this wallpaper up, you can come to the party. We said, okay. Because I think Mark said, is there going to be food there? <laughs> That's what we were concerned with. And he said, oh, yeah, it's a big party. So we took off his wallpaper and put up new wallpaper, and we got invited to this party. Everybody who was anybody at the time was there. Led Zeppelin, Elton John, Dusty Springfield, Sonny and Cher, Peter Allen. I mean, everybody, it was one of those classic Hollywood parties. And everybody back then, that was like, what, 72, 73. Everybody had like, you know, nine-inch platform shoes on and, and silk suits and stuff like that. And, my brothers and I are from Portland, Oregon. We had on jeans and T-shirts. That's all we had. So we automatically stood out. We, we've always been funny. The three of us were always funny. We always made people laugh. It was just natural. And Chris Beard saw us there, and he was talking to my brother Mark, and I walked up and said, hey, have you tried the shrimp? Because they had really good shrimp there. And he, Chris said, who's that? And he goes, this is my brother Brett. Chris started to laugh. And about two minutes later, Bill walks up and goes, have you guys had the shrimp? And Chris was laughing really hard. And, and he goes, who's that? Don't tell me he's another brother. And Mark goes, yeah, that's my brother Bill. And he started to laugh, like really, really hard at, at how, how we were acting and how different we looked in the midst of all these other people. And he said, uh, I want you guys to come down to CBS and meet my partner, which we did. And uh, then we went to to England and started rehearsing for Totally Out of Control and went to France. We were in France for about two months at the Chateau cutting that album. And when we got back to Los Angeles, we were staying at the, at, they put us up at the Montmel uh, Hyatt house and we had a message from Chris Beard. We don't even know how he got, knew we were there. And he said, you know, come down to CBS. And we went down to CBS and we were standing there. And he said, you guys want to do television? And we said, no way. No, we're rock and rollers. We don't want to do television. He said, I'll pay you $5,000 a show. And we said, we love television. Let's do it. I got to give it to Chris. Chris saw something. Uh, Chris recently passed away a couple of years ago, uh, unfortunately. But Chris had this ability to see through the not necessarily polished performer, but he could see that there was something in my brothers and I that worked. So we went down to CBS and we we cut a presentation. Now we had never done television 
before. So they were telling us, okay, Brett, when you say that line, look at camera one, which is on my right, camera two in the middle, camera three on my left, and camera four up on the crane. Well, what happened is they moving the cameras around, they switched. So I would deliver a line to camera one, but camera three was on. And this was a rehearsal. And my brother Bill would go, Brett, what the hell are you doing? But it's the red light. I said, he said camera one. He said camera one's over there. So we would argue and then rehearse the 20-minute presentation. And when it was over, Bill goes, okay, Chris, we're ready to do it. And Chris had tears running down his eyes. And he goes, no, we're done. So went, no, that, and he goes, no, we're done. Trust me. And they played it for Fred Silverman was the head of CBS at the time. They played it for Fred Silverman. And Fred Silverman looked at it and, from what I was told, was laughing his butt off and said, give him five shows in the summer. And that's how we got that summer show. It was, it was, it, it was, it was a fluke that we got it, but it wasn't a fluke that we did it. And there was a character on there that um, maybe some of you remember called Chucky Margolis, which was a little kid that lived in his basement. For six weeks, we begged them to let us do it. Please let us do this. It's a great character. Brett's been doing it since 1968. Now it's 1974, based on a kid that used to come to our dances in Portland. And they wouldn't let us do it. And I think they felt sorry for us, in my honest opinion. And Alan Bly said, look, we're going to finish about 45 minutes early. We'll give you guys a set, and we'll shoot Chucky Margolis. And it was in front of a live audience. So nobody even knew who we were. We did Chucky Margolis and it tore the house down. I mean, unbelievable response from the audience. Like, you know, four or five minute laugh breaks. And uh, the next day, Chris Beard called us and said, do you have any more Chucky Margolises? And we said, yeah, we've got, we've got, you know, five years worth of them. Which ones do you want? So they brought us back into the studio and we cut four more Chucky Margolises and they put one in every summer show. And years later, Chris Beard told me that it was Bill Paley, who used to own CBS, saw our first show, saw Chucky Margolis and said, you got you better have that in every show. And that's why we went back in and cut four more. Chucky, Chucky, come here. Hi. Want to see my waterbed? Do you have a waterbed? It's not a real one. Shut up, Alan. It's not a real one. I just filled my old mattress with water. <laughs> His folks thought he went to bed. <laughs> They put the Chucky Margolis sketch into the Hollywood Situation album. Was that uh, something that was out of your control? Completely out of our control. And uh, the arguments and the fights that we got into because of that was legendary at Casablanca. We were absolutely appalled and beside ourselves. They couldn't split. We they couldn't they couldn't divide. Our, our two talents. We were very funny and very physical, and and television was became natural to us. But what we really were were musicians, songwriters, and singers. So I didn't want Chucky Margolis on that album at all. I mean, it was it was 
it was music. It wasn't sketch, but Neil Bogart, and again, 2020 hindsight, back then I was beside myself and angry. And now that I look back on it and I'm, you know, the ripe old age of 65, he did the right thing for his business. That was, and, and, you know, um, I understand as I got older why he did it. Back then, you know, I was, what, 21, 20, 21 years old. Well, that's one of the reasons why we left Casablanca, to be honest with you. That's why we left Casablanca and went back to rock. It was because of that. Do you think the TV show was the right move? Because the show still holds a special place in the hearts of pop music and pop culture fans, even more than like Pink Lady and Jeff or the Starland Vocal Band show. Yeah, well, just a little side note, Pink Lady and Jeff, a lot of what you heard Pink Lady singing was me and Mark. They didn't speak English very well, uh, a little broken. So a lot of those, uh, a lot of their songs were me and Mark singing because we could, we, we have very high vocal range. So we went in and uh, sang a lot of their songs. But, you, you know, look, somebody asked me, this was a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was doing a radio show. And they asked me if I could change anything, what would I change? And I thought about it for about two seconds, and I went, absolutely nothing. I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, it paid out the way it was supposed to. I mean, even if my brothers and I had stayed in music, we still would have ended up on in, in either movies or television because we were very visual and we were very funny. And, you know, back then we were three good-looking guys. I mean, yeah, back then, you know, we were... And we were real brothers, and we had this bond that that was unbreakable. Uh, I wouldn't change it for the world. However, if I went back and know what I know now, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have done television as early as we did. Because our music was starting to take off. Was, so we were starting to get a great buzz inside the industry. Um, um, the, the song Rendezvous, I mean, we got... Like, Elton John, was who we were signed to, he was renting a house up Benedict Canyon here in Los Angeles. And we were just hanging around, drinking and talking and stuff like that. And Elton said, you know, people don't, don't do summer records anymore. They don't do summer songs like, like the Beach Boys did. And we kind of didn't think anything of it. About two days later, we were going out to dinner with Bruce Johnson in the Beach Boys. We're at dinner and Bruce goes, I have this hook in my head and I don't know what to do with it. And we said, what is it? This is where it got true. He went, rendezvous, oh, rendezvous, 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 rendezvous. And we sat there a second and said, that's it? You don't have anything else? He goes, no, it's all I got. We'd always carried a guitar in the car. So Bill went and got the guitar. We were at Shea Jay's in Santa Monica. And Jay used to let us stay there as long as we wanted. And we got the guitar and went in this back little room. And me, Bill, Mark, and Bruce wrote rendezvous. Went to the studio two days later, was mastered by Bernie Grunfeld, and eight days later was on KSJ. That doesn't happen anymore. But that kind of stuff uh, was overshadowed by the fact that we were on television, which I, I, to this day, I don't understand why. Maybe had we had big success musically before we did television, might have changed things. But that's not how it worked out, so I have no regrets. I'm proud of what my brothers and I did and are still doing
was it hard to balance songwriting, recording, live, uh, TV show, and other uh, promotional responsibilities? It was, you know, it's very. Somebody sent me a couple of weeks ago a uh, when my brothers and I were on American Bandstand. And uh, Dick Clark said, you guys don't stop. You play concerts. You do television. You make records. You play Vegas. Uh, and which we did. We played Vegas and, and because of our television show. And my brother Bill, and I think Mark, one of them answered it correctly, is we loved to work. We really did. It wasn't that difficult to balance it. But we never stopped. We didn't take vacations and stuff like that. We were caught because we did so, you know, I, we also did theater. I, we did uh, The Wizard of Oz with Margaret Hamilton, the original Liquid Witch at the Muni Opera in St. Louis and the Starlight Theater in Kansas City to sold out. And we went from literally doing theater, The Wizard of Oz, flew home, changed our clothes, packed up and went on the road for uh, four and a half weeks, got back, went to the studio, started recording, did television and recording at the same, we were cutting an album and doing television at the same time. We just never stopped. We just kept going. And it, it kind of becomes a way of life. It just, it is what it is. And, you know, you guys got to do, uh, you know, uh, John Denver special. Okay. And then you got to record from eight o'clock until two in the morning. Okay. We just kind of, we just, we did it. And we actually loved it. <laughs> we, we, we enjoyed being busy. It made us more creative. People are crazy about these first two Hudson Brothers records. But the third one, Bafa, seems to be the, the album that fans are the most rabid about. Like the Beatles, I mean, you put on a Revolver or Rubber Soul or Sgt. Pepper and you can you don't have to skip a track. You can just listen to the side and then listen to the other side. We wanted to make an album where if where we thought that you put that you put that needle down and if you could listen to every track and not lift and move. And we wanted to cut an album like that. And I think we came damn close with Bop Bop. I really do. I mean I, I haven't I don't really listen to our music, which is I mean I'll, you know, if I have my uh my uh, iTunes on shuffle, whatever it is. Occasionally, our songs will come up, but I don't sit down and like listen to our music. And I will quote George Harrison. Somebody said, "Why don't you do that?" And my in George Har I, I was there. The great George Harrison quote. I'll tell you briefly. My brother Mark and I had an office at Village Recorders, and the Traveling Woolberries were recording downstairs. And every once in a while, uh, they would come up, and we had a whole bunch of great vintage guitars. And they would borrow, like, you know, I have a, a 53 Hoffner. I have, I have all the, and Mark had like a bunch of, uh, you know, Fenders and, and Rickenbackers and Gibsons. And they would borrow guitars. And uh, Jeff Lynn, George Harrison, Tom Petty, and a guy named Richard Dodd, who was their engineer, were up in our office. And Yoko had given Mark a, a cassette, a cassette of the Beatles rehearsing I Saw Her Standing There back in 60-whatever it was, three and played it. And Jeff Lynn was like, oh, man, that's unbelievable. Tumble, can I have a copy? And Mark said, I, I promised you if I wouldn't give it out, you're going to have to ask her. And he goes, oh, I'll ask her. And he turned, he said, George, do you want one? He went, no, I was there. And you know what? I laughed then, but I totally understand where that came from. Uh, 
like people ask me questions about our music and stuff like that. I got this, you know, somebody gave me this, it's just your band track. Do you want a copy of it? And I no, I remember it. I, I don't need a copy of it. It's, it's burnt in my brain, that kind of stuff. But we, we, uh, in, at Bothwell, we tried to make an album where every song was listenable, if you know what I mean. You could just put it on and let it play. And I think we came damn close. I really do. Well, I've been asking simple questions so many influence still really strong but there's also a huge nod to the beach boys was that a deliberate move yeah i mean look we were influenced by the beach boys i mean their harmonies were unbelievable and, you know you talk to brian and they were influenced by the four freshmen those kind of bands and we were influenced by their because we harmonized my brothers and i harmonized great i mean we really did it's it's, it's same with the Bee Gees. it's just it, it's that brother thing i don't know if it's in our throats or, or in our minds but we would just, I knew the range I sang, and Mark knew the range he would sing, and Bill knew the range he would sing, and we just kind of would hit those notes. And we cut this song called Oh Gabriel, and uh, Bruce stopped by the studio, Bruce and Carl will stop by the studio, and Bruce listened to it, and he goes, God, you, should, you could start that out vocally, it would be beautiful. And we said, what do you mean? And he kind of said, let's do this, and we went to the, to the piano, and uh, Bob Elsevar, who was our uh, uh, arranged all the vocals, played it, and we got these notes. And me, Bill, Mark, Carl, and Bruce, and uh, the fourth Hudson brother, our best best friend and brother, Randy Foote, went out and put that big uh, vocal opening to it. And it was very reminiscent of the Beach Boys. But I don't mind paying tribute to bands or singers that influenced us at all. There's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Oh, Gabriel, I know I'm just your brother. I the title Bafa come from? Well, that's a, 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 that's a street Sicilian slang. Uh, and it basically, the whole thing is, you could believe this if you want, the whole thing is a Bafangul, which is basically 
fuck you. So we call, you know, because people will know that. We'll just call it Baha. So we had everybody saying from the, I mean, like Dinah Shore and Mike Douglas and, and all these people were saying from their album, Baha, what they were saying from their album, Fuck You. <laughs> but here it is. The album, Fuck You, comes out. And <laughs> it's probably at your best album to date. And then that's it for a few years. What happened? Did you purposely step away? Back then, what happened is, uh, and, and I'm not bragging on studio musicians or outside songwriters at all. I mean, my brother Mark writes Smith and Ringo and Ozzy Osbourne and my niece Sarah writes for Katy Perry and Nicki Minaj and all these other people. So I'm not negating that talent. That's a talent unto itself. Um, what happened was we were working a lot. We were doing, I was doing a television show over in England. And they want, and we were on Arista Records at the time, and they wanted a, a record. Well, we had to finish the television show before we could come back and you know write and record. So Clive Davis went to Tony McCauley, really good guy, good songwriter. God bless him. He passed away, and he wanted to produce us. Well, we didn't have time to really do anything, so he went out and wrote some songs and went and found some songs like Help Wanted and stuff like that. And Clive basically said, "You will record these." And we, we, we just kind of went, why? Let us give it, let it, we're almost done. We're finished in September. We'll have an album out by January or February. He said, no, you got to get an album out now. And at that point, we were kind of like, you know what? This is ridiculous. Uh, and, and that really kind of, uh, we, we just weren't into it. I guess that's the best thing I could, uh, I could say. I mean, uh, uh, there were some good songs. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to be lonely. It's a really good pop song and stuff like that. But, it wasn't us. And, and I never, I honestly, I swear to God truth, I've never put that album on and listened to it ever because it's not who we were or not who we are. Bill was married to Goldie and Katie and Oliver and stuff like that. You know, he, he was settling down, so to speak. And uh, Mark wanted to continue writing and singing and performing, and I didn't really want to anymore. I, I can tell you, we were in Lake Tahoe. It was 1981. We were ready to go on stage, and my brother Bill turned around to me, and I'll never forget it. He goes, have you had it? I said, you can stick a fork in. And that was our last you know, uh, and 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 then I started I started writing and 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 directing and producing television shows, and I wrote a screenplay and sold it, and, and that's what I wanted to do. So, 
we still did fuck together, but it didn't have, we didn't have the same charge as we had early on because we wanted to move on and, and do other things. I know that sounds weird, but that's kind of what, what happened. When can we expect to see all the albums released on CD? That is the most asked question every time anybody talks about the Hudson Brothers. They want the albums on CD. I ask that same question all the time. I don't even know where they are. Because what happened was Rocket got merged into MCA. uh, And uh, Casablanca, I think, was purchased by Polydor or Polygram. My honest opinion, if I were those guys, I would release them on CD and iTunes because they they were of its time and they were professionally done. And there's, you know, there's a lot of older folk, as they say, that buy buy records. I mean, look, um, I'm 65 years old. I still buy songs that I like. If I like a song, I'll go on iTunes or wherever I can get it and download it and pay for it. I don't have a problem with that. I actually don't know that answer, but I wish somebody would put them out on, uh, on, on you know, CDs or at least uh, allow people to download them from the other the obvious platforms because they're good songs, good albums. It's, it's, it's pop music of a time that doesn't exist anymore. Well, what did you do once the Hudson Brothers officially split up? I, I, wanted, to, I, I wanted to make movies, and I, I dove into that with the same passion and headstrong as, as we did as Hudson Brothers. And I, I started to, it started to work for me. I started to, I, I sold a lot of television shows. I did, I, I, I wrote movies. I wrote a Burt Reynolds movie and produced it. I wrote, I, I did, uh, you know, a series for Showtime. I did uh, a mini series for Bravo. I did documentaries and I did, and it was starting to work. And then in 2007, I got sick. I was diagnosed with stage four throat cancer. And uh, if you listen, you can probably hear the brakes squeaking on my life at that point because I was that sick. I was, uh, I was, uh, I was supposed to die. I was told by six doctors I'd be dead within six months if I didn't do what's called a morbid operation. And I got so sick. I couldn't, I didn't work for four and a half years. I didn't do anything uh, it's because not because I didn't want to, it's because I couldn't. I was that sick. I mean, I was, I was a, a, a hefty 210 pounds when I was diagnosed. Yeah, that's how sick I was. And, but you know what? You, you, you learn, even from tragic things like that, you got you to gotta learn something. And, and uh, I was dying, and Cher, of all people, yeah, that Cher, I've known her for 45 years, found out through her sister, Georgianne, who used to be my girlfriend, that I was, I had cancer and Cher called and said, you know, come over to my house. I want you to meet this doctor. I was like really, really sick. I mean, when I went, well, when I saw Cher, I walked into her house. She went, Brady, you're dying. I said, yeah, no kidding. So did the doctor. I gave the doctor my medical records and Cher and I sat and talked for about 45 minutes and the doctor, her name is Dr. Ursula Jakob. She's German. She came down and she said, I can cure you. I said, well, tell me how. And what she told me made logical sense. And seven days later, I was in Germany. And eight weeks after that, I came home with no tumor, no cancer, no operation. And I'm, that was 10 years ago. I'm still alive and kicking. And I'm, I'm, I have to say this. My wife just uh, whispered to me and she said, she said, and your wife. So 
me and my wife went to Germany, and uh, I came home cured. And you're feeling great? I'm doing great. I am. Uh, I. I don't even go for scans anymore. Uh, I did so many PT and CT scans and MRIs for four and a half years. You know, and which and what really made me stop doing it was, you know, I'm I'm butt naked with a hospital a cotton hospital gown on, and some guy walks in with a a, a lead vest with a lead box with a lead syringe and injects that in my body, and I but near the end I said, wait a minute, why are you in lead and I'm in cotton? And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and walked out, and I thought this can't be good for me. I've had so many of these done. I. I had a scan every three or four months for four and a half years. And knock on wood, thank God, they always, they came up clear. So I finally, my last one, I looked at the doctor. I said, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And he laughed. He goes, I could see that you're done. I said, I'm done. If I get cancer, I'll give you a call. I said, God bless you. Go in peace. And I left. That was the last uh, scan I had. I feel great. I'm, I'm actually in better... I did so took so much medicine and supplements and stuff when I was in Germany. My line was, I'm healthier now than I was at birth. So I, I, I feel good. I'm not sick. Because I was out for four and a half years, I have the energy of a, of a four-year-old. I can't sit down long. I want to work. I want to create. I want to do. And, and that's because I had that downtime trying to save my life, which might have been uh, a, a gift of God, because y y you do this as long as I, I mean, I've been in show business. And I, I can't even say this out loud. I've been in show business 53, 54 years, which is a long time. And it's, it's all I really know. I mean, you know, if somebody said, what else can you do? I would say, uh, I don't know. I guess I could mow your lawn. <laughs> That's about it. But I, I've been doing this my whole life. And taking that time off, trying not to die, really gave me uh, motivation and pounds of energy to do what I want to do, which is what I'm doing. And you're also very passionate about raising awareness and and donations. Now, do you support a certain nonprofit? I tied in with a nonprofit. It's uh, it's it's called Kingdom Builders Worldwide. They're out of Michigan. I did a, a an interview a couple of days ago, and the, the the lady asked me why I'm so passionate. And I said, cancer tried to kill me. Now I'm going to kill it. This is revenge for me. It really is. And, and I talked to so many people with cancer over the last 10 years. I can't tell you. I don't know how many. And they, they get my number. Like I spoke to this guy named Dan, uh, I guess it was the day before yesterday, who got my number from a woman named Barbara, who I guess I spoke to two years ago, who had breast cancer and she's in remission. I, she went to, I hooked her up in Germany with a doctor there and a doctor here in Los Angeles. And she's in remission. And he called me and he has a, was diagnosed with cancer on Tuesday. And I, and I said, uh, you know, he was, if you've never been, if you've never had a, and I hope nobody ever has a doctor say, you've got cancer. But when they say that, it is, it, it, it's not a shock. You are numb and you don't. I was in a cloud. I was stunned by it. And, and having gone through what I went through, I, I wouldn't want somebody I don't like to go through that. I, I, and I'm passionate about this. Before I leave this earth, you mark my words, Stephen, before I leave this earth, I'm going to make sure that I do my part, 
not just to find a Band-Aid or medicine to sustain your life. I want to find medicine that will kill that disease because that disease is the devil. Why don't you, why don't you, why don't you Everybody I and Sid and Jeff and Liz and Melissa, they all passed away and I didn't. And for two years, I couldn't figure out why I'm still here and they're not. And I figured it out. It's because I'm here to start this crusade. I'm not going to stop until I achieve my goal, which is find a cure for cancer. And I'm not going to go to the American Cancer Society. I'm not going to go to any of those big organizations. I have five research doctors that are independent two of them well all of them saved my life all of the profits and the the, uh, the donations from my project that i'm doing i'm doing a film right now called what you can't see all the profits from the sale of that is going to these specific cancer researchers and they know my agenda i don't want just a band-aid i want a cure period end of story and i'll get it that's how positive i am all you listeners out there and everybody's been affected by this disease. You know, one in three people get cancer. And what's really weird is when, when, I, when I got cancer, it affected my whole family. And everybody had cancer. I just was carrying the tumor. But if you go to www.kingdombuildersworldwide.org, go down to the bottom right hand is a little blue dot that says give. Click on that. Put in your donation. A page will come down, scroll down to what you can't see, click on the envelope, and you will receive a receipt because it's a donation and it's 100% tax write-off, 100%. So it's, it's www.kingdombuildersworldwide.org. Click the blue button, put in your donation. A page will come down, go to what you can't see, click the envelope. You've just done your part to literally kill this disease. I want this disease gone. that's it for this episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. I'd like to thank my special guest, Mr. Brett Hudson, for sharing his memories. I'd also like to thank Keith Klingensmith and Brad Beard for help with the music. Please stick around after this end theme for bonus Q&A session with Brett Hudson. I'd like to thank you for listening and smell you later. And right now, here is a bonus Q&A session where Brett answers your questions. Richard Rossi asks, 
I've heard that back in the day, they cut their teeth on live shows in which they would perform the entire Sgt. Pepper album. Is there any truth to that? That is not the truth at all. Yeah, I think we did uh, uh, we did two songs from that album. Uh, I sang uh, with a little help from my friends, and uh, we did uh, Good Morning, Good Morning, Good Morning. Uh, we did those two songs. Those were the only two we did. Aaron asks, how do you feel about Mark doing the Beatle Fest conventions, and would you ever think about joining him? Well, actually, I did. I, I did uh, three Beatle Fests with Mark. I, I did a documentary called The Seventh Python about a gentleman named Neil Innes. You know, he did the Ruddles, and, and he used to write, uh, he wrote a lot of the Monty Python songs like Sir Robin, uh, and, and he actually replaced John Cleese when John left uh, Monty Python. His band uh, uh, over in England, uh, the Duda band, had a song called uh, Urban Spaceman, which McCartney produced. He was really good friends with Harrison and stuff like that. So when I did this documentary, screened it at uh, three Beatle Fests. And because I was there doing that, I actually you know, got up on stage and Mark and I played and you know, played music. And the, the best part of it was at... at we had this late night thing at 12 o'clock, Mark and I would go into this room and there were like 6,000 people and we, they would ask questions and we would tell stories. That was the best part about it. I did, uh, I did three of them with Mark, but I, I don't think he's doing them anymore. Uh, he was doing something with Gary Burr, a very good songwriter. Uh, he was, uh, he was, he performed last week. I think he did something, some tribute to Crosby, Stills and Nash. Will the seventh Python ever gain an official release? Because a lot of people have never seen it. Yeah, it will. The problem with what happened to it is we finished it, we screened it at uh, the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood for the Mont and Rocker Festival. We screened it in Chicago. We screened it in in uh, Perth, and it got we got amazing reviews. So when I went to clear the music, because you got to clear the music, uh, I didn't know, and Neil didn't even bother to bring it up because he didn't think it would be a problem. But when, when Neil wrote all those songs for the Ruttles, he was sued by the Beatles for copyright. And then the settlement, if you look at who wrote those Ruttle songs, it's Lennon and McCartney and Neil Innes. So when you try to clear from a publisher a Lennon and McCartney song, they will gouge you. And for me to, there were 20 songs in that documentary. For me to clear the 20 songs would have cost more than the documentary cost. So I couldn't, I couldn't clear the music. However, it's being worked on as we speak, which is really interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, they're, they're, uh, uh, an attorney is trying to make deals with the publishers because all I need is sync rights. I don't need the recording rights, which are more expensive. It's sync rights because Neil played them live. And once they do that, it will be distributed. 